Last time I was here, we were preaching about how the five heads got true faith. Quick review, we heard that they were a people with a high standard of natural morality, and that they had, God had already sent them prophecies concerning the coming of fair-skinned men wearing long black robes who would teach them a new way of praying and a new moral law. We saw how the hand of divine providence guided a band of Catholic Iroquois to immigrate from Montreal to western Montana and then join the Flathead people. We saw that over time, the desire to have a real black robe to instruct them became almost an obsession with them to the point that they set out four different expeditions, 1831, 1835, 1837, and 1839 expeditions from western Montana to St. Louis to beg the bishop to send them a black robe. We saw that finally a dear friend of St. Philippine de Chain, Father Pierre de Smet, S.J., was sent to start a mission in the Rocky Mountains for the Flatheads. We saw that some 1,600 Flatheads, Ponderé and Nez Pierce, came to greet Father de Smet and travel with him from the Tetons there in western Wyoming back into western Montana. They were so eager to know the truths of our holy faith that they would attend four catechism classes every day. And that they all burst into tears and were sobbing when he announced that he had to go back to St. Louis and get more supplies and missionaries. So on August 27, 1840, Father DeSmet left Three Forks, Montana, and in the company of a mountain man, struck out from Missouri. He arrived back in St. Louis on New Year's Eve. Now he had an awful lot of adventures en route, but we don't have the time to go into that. Father Smet venerated St. Philippine de Shane as a mother. So when he got home, it was his custom to go straight to her convent to give her a full report. As he later said, quote, Never did I leave her without feeling I had been conversing with a saint. I have always regarded this mother as the greatest protector of our missions. For several years, she offered two communions a week and daily prayers for the conversion of the Indians, whom she dearly loved. Close quote, Father DeSmet. In fact, it was after his arrival from this first mission trip to the Flatheads that Father DeSmet convinced St. Philippine to ask permission to come to the Potawatomis here in Kansas. Since he didn't have enough money to outfit a new expedition to the mountains, he had to drum it up himself. So he went on a begging tour to New Orleans and Philadelphia, and he rustled up enough money to get started. Late April, he left St. Louis and met up with the rest of his party here in Westport. There were 11 men from eight different nationalities in that small group. Six were Jesuits, three priests, and three brothers, and five were laymen. They left from Westport on May 10, 1841. They had three two-wheeled carts and one wagon, and the priests were all mounted. The little group joined up with a party of 60 that were bound for California, and it wound up that their mission band led the way. In early August, at Soda Springs, Idaho, they parted ways with the California group and headed north towards Hudson Bay Company's Fort Hall which is on the Snake River. Near Fort Hall, they were greeted by the young Indian, who the previous year had been Father DeSmet's guide from Westport to the Rockies. This young man had run for four days without food or water, 
in order to be the first to greet the black robes. He led them to Fort Hall, where they found a band of some 20 flatheads who had traveled around 350 miles down to Fort Hall just to greet the black robes. Now this band included a seven-year-old boy who had served at the altar the previous year and who insisted that he be allowed to come to greet the black robe, and also his grandfather Simon, who was the oldest man in the tribe, who had been baptized the previous year. Father Smith said of Simon, quote, Simon was so burdened with the weight of years that even when seated, he needed a stick for his support. He had no sooner ascertained that we were en route than mounting his horse and mingling with young warriors who were prepared to go forth to meet us, he said, My children, I shall accompany you. And then he led his useful followers at the rate of 50 miles a day. Close quote, Father Smith. Now that's some hard ride, 50 miles a day. The Indians told him that since he had left, the whole tribe had prayed together twice a day and three times on Sundays, just as he had told them. And they had carefully guarded the chest, which contained the vestments and everything for the altar, and they carried it on high, like the Ark of the Covenant, every time their camp was moved. The mission band and their little flathead guard gradually made their way north into Montana. They wandered around western Montana for some time, searching for a good location which would be protected from the winds and yet which have good soil and good water. Finally, on the Feast of Our Lady of Mercy, September 24th, they chose a place to establish a mission about 18 miles above the mouth of the Bitterroot River on the East Bank. That's right near the present-day town of Stevens Mill, Montana. They picked out a place for the church and immediately began work on it. And then they sent out messengers to call on the rest, messengers to call on the rest of the tribe who were living in small bands scattered around the country. The first Sunday in October, the Feast of the Holy Rosary, the Jesuits dedicated the mission to Our Lady, naming it St. Mary's Mission, and they named the peaks immediately to the west, St. Mary's Peak and St. Joseph's Peak. After Father DeSmet erected a cross in the center of the camp, there was this beautiful ceremony. Quote, I should have liked all who are zealous Christians to be present at this ceremony. It was a moving spectacle to see the flatheads from the chief to the youngest child, come to press their lips reverently upon the emblem of our salvation and swear upon their knees to die a thousand deaths rather than to abandon their religion. Close quote, Father Desmet. Suddenly, an Iroquois exclaimed, Why, this is the very place where little Mary said the house of prayer would be built. And this caused the people to get even more excited and filled with joy. Why? Father Smith explains, quote, During my absence, one of the hunting bands had encamped in this valley, and a little girl of 12 or 14 years of age had here fallen sick and died. But previous to her death, she had earnestly asked for baptism. I would instructed two or three Indians how to administer baptism in case of necessity. Overjoyed at having been baptized, the poor child thanked God with all her heart. Suddenly she cried out, Oh, there is no happiness in this world. Happiness is only to be found in heaven. I see the heavens open and the mother of Jesus Christ inviting me to go up to heaven. Then turning to the astonished Indians, she added, Listen to the black gowns when they come. They have the true prayer. Do all they tell you. They will come 
And on this very spot where I die, they will build the house of prayer. After these words, she expired. The circumstances had been forgotten, and now suddenly it recurred to their minds. Close quote, Father Dismet. Even though the construction of the chapel and buildings had to be done at a rapid pace because of the lateness of the year, still they put first priority on the catechism classes. The chapel was completed in November, and the missionaries chose December 3rd, the feast of St. Francis Xavier, as a date for the baptism of the 202 adults they had prepared. As the date grew closer, all kinds of strange mishaps began happening. The translator and the sacristan would get sick just when they were needed most. Things would break. The day before the baptism, a weird tornado, now this is a tornado in December in the Rocky Mountains, a weird tornado came through the camp, ripping up trees by the roots and overturning three lodges. Obviously, the prince of this world was pretty disturbed by what was going on. On the feast of St. Francis Xavier, they were in the chapel from 8 in the morning till 9.30 at night. The great chief, Big Face, who was almost 90 and who had been baptized the previous year, was present from the beginning to the end of the ceremony. During the ceremonies, St. Francis Xavier appeared on the epistle side of the altar to a catechumen of the Cree tribe, a man named Michael. St. Francis was standing in the air at about the height of the altar. He was wearing a surplus and a stole over his cassock and he had on his head a hat like the father's wore, a beretta. As the priest noted, St. Michael described this with such simplicity that it was absolutely impossible to be at all suspicious or to doubt him in any way. Their marriages were then solemnized. Because the Indians had been ignorant of the unity and dissolubility of the marriage bond, it often occurred that straightening out a marriage situation was very painful for everyone concerned. But since the Flatheads were willing to undergo any suffering, since they were willing to pay any price in order to be baptized and get into heaven, by Christmas, with very few exceptions, their marriages had all been blessed and the entire nation had done everything, quote, necessary to merit the title of true children of God, close quote. Years later, one of the Jesuit brothers noted, quote, all these marriages kept good, but one, I'm glad to say that these were the chosen people of God, close quote. On Christmas, 150 more are baptized, including 30 Nez Pierce with their chief and a Blackfoot chief and his family. And on that first Christmas at St. Mary's Mission, there was yet another astonishing event. Father DeSmet, quote, Christmas Eve was rendered remarkable by an extraordinary event. A boy of about 12 years of age, who had for several months attended catechism Finding himself incapable of learning the prayers, gave up in despair and discontinued his attendance. On the eve of Christmas, his mother said to him, Paul, the Great Spirit will be angry with you and will never admit you into heaven if you do not learn your prayers. Mother, he said, the Great Spirit will have pity on me. I tried to learn my prayers and I have been unable to do it. However, I will go again and try. He then directed his steps towards the lodge of one of the catechists. On opening the door, he saw a person standing about two feet from the ground, in the midst of bright rays of light, dressed all in white. Under the person's feet was a sphere 
a half moon, and a serpent with a strange fruit in its mouth. Above the person's head was a bright star. The heart was visible and rays of light proceeded from it. At first he was afraid, was on the point of running away. But on taking a second glance at the person, he perceived a smile on the countenance which filled him with confidence. He kneeled and begged of the person to teach him his prayers. Suddenly, he felt his mind clear and his heart warm. Such are the child's own expressions. And he recited the whole of the prayers without difficulty. He returned immediately and told his mother he knew his prayers. She could not believe it. He recited them in her presence, and he knew them so accurately that he corrected his sister, who mistook in two or three words. He then related the story. It soon became the subject of conversation among the Indians. None could imagine who the person was, nor could they ever decide whether it was a man or a woman. Unable to solve the problem themselves, after the lapse of several days, they came to us. I showed an image of an apparition of the Blessed Virgin to Paul. He recognized her immediately with this difference, that he saw her with one star, with her hands joined before her breast, and with her heart visible. The circumstance of the single star coincided singularly with the festival of Christmas. The candor, the simplicity, the piety of a child, the perfect consistency of his answers to all the questions put to him, and above all, the fact that hitherto he had been unable to learn his prayers, and that on a sudden he was formed to know them perfectly, plainly showed that our Blessed Lady had really favored this poor child in an extraordinary manner. This occurrence was the occasion of the conversion of a great number of Nez Pierce. When the Flatheads told them of Paul's vision, they sent for the boy, questioned him, and cross-questioned him, till at length, fully convinced of the reality of the vision, they came into the camp, and after a course of instruction which lasted two months, they were all baptized. Close quote, Father Desmet. Father Desmet noted several times Our Lady had appeared to the boy when he was sleeping, and at once she told him she was pleased that the first village of the Flatheads should be called St. Mary. Little Paul lived an angelic life until his death two years later. With the close of 1841, we'll close this story. There's an awful lot more to it. We just don't have the time. We've only hit the high points. As we continue our study of grace, actual grace, sanctifying grace, and charismatic graces, we'll have occasion to turn back and take a closer look at some of these incidents and some that we haven't mentioned yet to see concrete examples of how the supernatural life works and how God intervenes in the lives of men. And if you're ever lost and find yourself up in Stevensville, Montana, the log mission built in 1866 is still standing and open from April to October. Right next door is the new church, which was built in 1954. Inside the new church are stained glass windows, including windows with Little Mary's vision of Our Lady, Michael's vision of St. Francis Xavier, and Little Paul's vision of Our Lady. They're stained glass windows that tell the story of how God saved this one particular pagan nation from hell.